Hello, everyone. This is Tulsi here. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me here on the show. If you would like to support this show and the content that we're creating as we take a stand for freedom and speak truth and speak with some common sense during these insane times, please visit TulsiGabbard.com and click on the support button. Uh, The only way that we're able to produce this show is through support from listeners and viewers just like you. Again, visit TulsiGabbard.com and click support. Aloha. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Water is life. Here in Hawaii, uh, our Board of Water Supply, their motto that they have printed all over their, their trucks and their vehicles is Kavaiola, water for life. We cannot survive without clean drinking water. My guest today is a fellow soldier in the Army Reserves, fellow civil affairs officer, and veteran of multiple deployments overseas. Rob McQueen leads a nonprofit called Waves for Water. And this nonprofit is centered around bringing access to clean drinking water to some of the most challenging environments in the world, to some of the people who need access to clean water the most. You're going to hear in our conversation a lot about his experiences, both in the military, as well as working with this nonprofit, Waves for Water, how we got to know each other and some of the shared experiences we've had. But ultimately, it comes down to this, that we became friends because we are two people who are deeply committed to service and understanding truly the importance of clean water. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I, uh, are you guys snowboarders, skiers, both? Both, yeah. Okay. I have a older daughter who is on snowboard team. She's actually wow. sickeningly good. <laughs> uh, my youngest is on ski team. I snowboarded for 30 years and mm-hmm. just shifted back to skiing to kind of teach the kiddos. Yeah. So it's been good. Yeah, That's it's fun. awesome. Yeah. I kind of equate, I, I have never tried skiing. Uh, I like snowboarding, yeah. but I'm not going to pretend to be any good at it because it's just it's so sporadic <laughs> whenever I'm able to go. Yeah. I love it, but I kind of equate, um, I don't know if it's to- it's not totally the same, but like a crowded surf lineup with oh, a crowd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're dodging actually- people, you're trying not to collide. Like the only difference is probably, I mean, like you don't have to like wait or fight for a wave when the wave comes in. You're, you're a know, surfer you've never too. Been in some you know, of the lift you know lines the up here. They're pretty That's brutal. That's <laughs> true. That's actually true. That's true. <laughs> no, it's 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 good. It's about the same. Um, there's just a lot less. I, I remember being in a, a crowded lineup at Tamarack in California and dropping in on somebody and just almost getting yeah. my ass beat oh, by like yeah. 15 different people. Yeah, so totally. <laughs> at least in snowboarding, like you're not quite that bad. Fist but fights, it, not similar. so common. <laughs> not so, I mean, they happen, but not so often. <laughs> It's good you can be home for a little stretch. I feel like you're on the it's move nice. quite a bit too. Yeah, second half of the year was crazy. So yeah. it's it's been it's been really nice to get back on the road kind of in that way, but at the same time it's it's definitely nice to be down. Like I'm home I think I'm home until we go to Costa Rica as a family in March. Okay. Uh, and then back to Ukraine and that's kind of the first trip on my on my radar. So, that's nice. 
That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so just just for for those who are listening, I'm talking to my friend Rob McQueen, and uh, we are, the way that we got to know each other is, is a little bit um, unexpected. <laughs> yeah, pretty random. <laughs> I was going through a civil affairs course. And because of uh, this was this was shortly after COVID kind of mm -hmm. broke out, actually, and I was supposed to be at the course at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, uh, in person. And then all of a sudden, we got a message saying, "Well, we're not canceling it. We're just going to do the whole thing online." And I think it was I think it was either Zoom, Microsoft Teams, one of those. But uh, you were a guest speaker for yep. this course that I was taking, and you're friends with one of our, our team instructors. And um, it was, you, you're, you are still a civil affairs officer in the Army Reserves. Yep. You I were am. Former, formerly on active duty, active duty civil affairs. And, uh, and that was the course that, that I was taking, and, and you were able to come and share some of your own experiences working in that area. And I just, I found it so fascinating because you've had such an incredible um, opportunity to go and do civil affairs work in, in different parts of the world. And, and it really stuck with me. But the thing, the thing that I ended up uh, providing me the opportunity to, to come back and reach out to you a few months later was you closed your talk with us talking about, well, what are you doing now? And uh, we're going to get into your work with waves for water but um i really that stuck with me because i first got involved with politics back in 2002 here in hawaii running for state house because of water issues uh because of of just work that i had done um you know even as a teenager about around clean water clean drinking water fast forward from my civil affairs training my initial civil affairs training that you spoke at to then I was deployed to East Africa and in Somalia, we faced a problem set that you are all too familiar with. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it was, it was, I was working with the civil affairs team out there and we were dealing with a group of people in a very difficult environment surrounded by Al-Shabaab terrorists. And one of the acts of terrorism against these people and, and the leverage points this terrorist group was using against them was taking away their access to clean water, take, ruining their access to the, the drinking water wells yep. that they had and so on. And so as you're sitting there like, gosh, what can we do? Like, how can we help these people? Because ultimately they wanted nothing to do with terrorists, but we're focusing on survival. So like, I have just the idea, <laughs> <laughs> call Rob McQueen. And so um, here we are full circle and uh, there, there's a lot of progress that's been made on that front. Uh, that, that particular mission at that time didn't, didn't end up working out, but there's been a lot of progress made. Gosh, there, there's so much I want to I talk to you about, but let's, let's just start there because I want to I just if, make sure I don't forget. I want to bring it back to how it is um, that Waves for Water can do so much work in other parts of the world, yep. but how when you're talking about places like Flint, Michigan, Jackson, Mississippi, and other places right here at home who are dealing with these exact same kinds of threats with yeah. lack of access to clean drinking water, your nonprofit doesn't have the opportunity or ability to help. But 
Yeah. Um, well, let's just start there because we're there. That's all right. Yeah, that's an easy one. Um, I guess let's kind of start with the mission of Waves for yeah. Water. I think that's the biggest piece. So we are a humanitarian aid organization, and we provide access to clean water to those that need it. And when I say those that need it, really where we focus is kind of what we like to call the forgotten ones, right? So we look at those pockets of people in remote, austere environments, combat zones, disaster zones, where our solution, our, our small filtration solution and our training methodology can provide that access, right? And so we're not a huge nonprofit. And this is what I love about us is we are a small team. Uh, John Rose, the founder, kind of coined the phrase guerrilla humanitarianism, mm -hmm. which I love, especially with you know the connection to unconventional warfare. I love that guerrilla thought process. And so and the, the connection really, to, you just mentioned the connection to unconventional warfare. For those yeah. who don't know what civil affairs is or what <laughs> how, how, how does guerrilla humanitarianism connect to unconventional warfare? I just the term guerrilla, right? Like yeah. the idea of upsetting the mainstream, of, of overthrowing that 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 nascent power, right? And that's the, what a guerrilla fighter is when you look at unconventional warfare, which is the art of overthrowing a country. And so when you look at it, guerrilla humanitarianism, what we mean is we are that like turning that, that kind on of disruptor, right? Yeah. We're turning up the basic, the the large scale nonprofit, the large NGO, non governmental organization, large system humanitarian process, and we're just going to find the people that aren't getting reached by that process and we're going to go do it ourselves. Uh, and sometimes that means we're just going to go, you know, we'll jump on the back of a race truck in Dakar or we'll get on a small boat and head deep into the Amazon, you know, and jump across the border from, from Brazil into Colombia or from Peru and Colombia to Peru. We'll, we'll make it happen because that's what we do. Uh, and so it is, it's bring access to clean water to the forgotten ones, to those that are not getting it through the larger systems, either through government or through those larger humanitarian systems that focus on large problems like Flint and Jackson, Mississippi, and Red Hill, uh, which I know is close to your heart. It, it's really where the systems that are supposed to provide large infrastructure and support don't work, and they're not right. reaching there for whatever reason. So we're going to plug that gap, right? We're not a long-term infrastructure solution, but we're a 15 to 20-year solution that maybe gives time for infrastructure to catch up. Right. Um, you know, what's interesting about those those three examples that you gave of... of um, Flint, Jackson, and Red Hill here in Hawaii. For those who don't know, Red Hill is kind of the moniker for this site that's been used since World War II, frankly, uh, where there were over 20 massive underground fuel tanks that were put in place. And, and it is a hill that kind of overlooks Pearl Harbor. And so they uh, were constructed very quickly with the idea that they would have these underground pipes that gravity let gravity do its work and feed that fuel down to to the ships and to to the the Pearl Harbor uh, Naval Shipyard uh, World War II fast forward here we are in 2023 and uh, for years and years now this very antiquated system has been leaking fuel um, which is a problem in and of itself but it is a huge problem because these underground fuel tanks were built over one of yep. our three water aquifers on the island and um, this is a, such an unfortunate situation on its own. Uh, throughout my time in Congress, I was calling on them to basically do what is necessary to make it so that these tanks are unleakable or shut them down. Uh, the Navy stonewalled us time and time again, uh, hid the fact that there were multiple leaks taking place, did not had no transparency, and frankly, have uh, they they have really, really, really. 
um, they've lost the trust of the people here in Hawaii yep. because of their arrogant uh, approach and their unwillingness to do the right thing. So we've gotten to a place now where finally the Navy has been forced to commit to shutting these tanks down because they can't protect um, they can't protect the water and because we just had a, another massive leak that resulted in you know people who were uh, bathing their people on base on Pearl Harbor, you know, giving their baby a bath in the sink. Meanwhile, there was uh, fuel toxins coming out of out of that water, babies breaking out in rashes, people being rushed to the hospital, pets getting yep. sick, all kinds of stuff. And even then, while that was happening, the Navy still denied uh, that that it was a problem. Um, oh, it's, we, it's, we had that same issue when I was in Louisiana, even, where we took my brand new daughter in, born down there, and uh, she had eczema, just brutal eczema. We took her in, they're like, when are you leaving? I'm like, well, we'll be out of here in about six months. They're like, just wait. The oh second you gosh. leave, it'll go away. Oh, my And so gosh. it's... It's brutal. And it's, it's, I mean, I've seen these throughout my career and I know you have as well is where, you know, there's always that mission focused attitude, which is one of the things I loved about the military, right? Like we're going to make the mission happen no matter what. But when you get to, you're not really in the mission, you're in that support side to the mission. And sometimes politics starts to play, personal careers start to play, and then transparency gets hit. And it's just like, hey, this is too big of a problem for us to deal with. The next guy that takes over for me in the next year can take over for it. We'll deal with it then. And And the soldiers and their families pay the price. That's exactly what happened. Uh, You know, I I was in Congress for eight years, and so I saw all of these different admirals coming in and shifting Mm -hmm. out really every couple of years. And every one of them would sit there and say, oh, we understand the seriousness of the situation, but really absolutely nothing, nothing would happen. And the problem perpetuated and it brought us, uh, unfortunately, to this point where a lot of people got really sick and and suffered as a result. But I I think that's the thing though, is with these different examples, you have, uh, oh, by the way, I don't know, this is is not a fuel leak, but um, just, I think it was in November, of mm-hmm. this past year, there was uh, 1,100 gallons of the PFAS firefighting foam that was spilled where? At Red Hill, again, uh, right over where the water aquifers are. So um, this has been a perpetual problem. We saw the same thing in Flint, Michigan, where the government stonewalled the people mm-hmm. who were getting poisoned there. And I, I just, yep. I mentioned these different examples because you talk about forgotten places and forgotten people people who aren't being served by some of the biggest institutions, whether they be government, yeah. business, or nonprofit. But one of the big challenges that we have here at home in the United States, where we should yeah. have these biggest, most powerful institutions working to solve these problems, because it's not like we don't have the smarts, the engineering, the ingenuity, the resources to be able to do it. They exist. They're just not being channeled towards actually solving these problems and in a lot of cases are part of the problem like you said for their whether it's self-protectionism or careerism or or frankly they just it's just not a priority and they don't care because it's not their kid who's breaking out in a rash and having to go to the hospital which is which is really sad to just put it bluntly um but but that's often the situation that we find ourselves and we've got a lot of forgotten people here who aren't being served and so why why so i i just what why what are the challenges that Waves for Water has as as this guerrilla humanitarian nonprofit? <laughs> I'm sure there are right. others who are in similar places. Why is it that you can go to Ukraine? You can go mm-hmm. to um, you know different countries in Asia. You can go to countries 
around the world and deploy the solutions, whether they be, you know, short term, medium term, long term, uh, to give people access to clean water. Yep. But your hands are tied your back uh, behind your back to actually help people right here in our own backyard. So when you look at our solution, uh, and really when you look at it, it's a small filtration system that does okay. all of your bacteria, cysts, protozoa, typhoid, all that na cholera, all that nasty stuff that provides about 80% of the water contamination in the world. So it creates a large swath of problem sets for us to attack. Right. Uh, the challenge is, is when you look at that system, one, in most... In most first world countries, right, you're not going to want to take the very system that we use, which is a simple five-gallon bucket or a larger cistern, attach a filter to it and fill your water up every day, right? That is a huge step that's difficult for people in the first world to address, right? They right. oftentimes rather go buy the bottled water and wait and be like, hey, why hasn't this been fixed? Because mm. it feels like a step down. So that's one issue that we run into here in the U.S. is our system doesn't really fit uh, with where we are Lifestyle. as a society. Got it. Right? And then, and number two is there's regulation. And so often what we use in areas where there's maybe a heavier contamination that our system can't take is we look very heavily towards rain catchment. Mm -hmm. So here in the U.S., we do work with the Lakota Sioux. Uh, we also work with the uh, the Navajo, and we worked with them through COVID. And we're able to set up rain catchment systems that then trap the water in a system and then use that filter to filter out any bacteria from that collection system, which works great. Uh, but you can't actually legally do rain catchment in the United States. And so then you run mm. into the regulation and you run into you know competing lobbies and everything else that goes into managing large you know essential services, water being the most critical of all the of them. most yep. exactly. like you have water's life period. yep. And we actually did, I love uh, the Jack Rose, who's the, the founder John Rose of Waves for Water's dad, uh, the godfather, so to speak. And mm. Jack is an absolute wild man. Love him. Just ideas, just crazy. And he came up with an entire idea. I think it was to use uh, well, one of the larger uh, sports stadiums as a collection mechanism, bottling and filtering all the water. And <laughs> I was like, this is great, I but there's it. no way, there's no <laughs> way this is going to go. And I love it. I mean, he had the entire thing drawn out. I was like, this yeah. would actually work. But yeah. again, it's just not one of those things. And also, and this is the challenge, especially as a small nonprofit, like where we have to decide where we are going to put our resources. Sure. And so not that the people in Flint, Michigan and all these other areas aren't deserving. It's that if we put our resources there that come from our donors, the people that are supposed to put resources there, it mm. gives them another chance to step back, put a little bit of money in their pocket and not deliver on the promises and the oath that they took to take care of those that, that population. And so it's a tough one, right? Like, yeah. And these are just decisions that are made all the time where how do we manage this? How do we do this? Where do we want to apply our resources? Where are we going to have the biggest impact? Where is it going to be close to who we are as an organization? And really what is going to come out on the backside? And are we giving influence and leverage? Because you can only imagine if we went to Flint and like, hey, we're bringing in a filter for every household and right. a rain catchment for every household standing right next to me to do that would be the councilwoman or the councilman and the mayor and every single person that was responsible for getting these things fixed, standing there taking credit and being like, look what I brought to you. Mm. You're welcome. And it's just it's something that we have to avoid and, and pay attention to as a nonprofit because water is influence like yeah. water's life. But water is influence. And, and you know this as well as I do uh, on the mission sets you've been on. Yeah. We'll just show real quick um, on the screen we have from your website, from Waves for Water, uh, some of the different systems you have and, and the things that you've uh, used to, to deploy to different places. And, and just to highlight your point, water is life. 
um, here in Hawaii, our Honolulu Board of Water Supply, their motto that's on all of their trucks and vehicles is Kavai Ola, which means water for life. Yep. But, but it is, it, it is that singular thing that none of us, no human life, no life can survive without a lot of other things. Might be, we might be struggling and suffering yep. and we might go hungry <laughs> for a little <laughs> while, but, but water is, is that singular thing that is absolutely yeah. essential. What was, was it three days? Three days. And three days. Yeah, it's that exactly. Exactly. So what was the genesis behind Waves for Water? How did it start? And, and what, what, what was kind of the problem that was identified that, uh, that drove the beginning of this organization? Oh, man. So I hope I do John's story justice because it really is like the first time you told it to me, like I loved it. So John was a professional surfer and was on his way out of surfing. And okay. so as he's trying to figure out what he's going to do, like he traveled to so many really cool communities surfing around the world. He's like, I want to find a way to give back. But in a little bit more of a selfish way, I also want to go back and surf my favorite breaks and not tell my boss that, I'm, hey, I'm going surfing. I'm actually <laughs> going to do humanitarian aid. So I love that part of the story, right? Like it's a little bit of uh, altruism and a little bit of got to find the right break, which, you know, as a surfer, like once you find a good break, yeah. you know, you're not, you're not giving it up. <laughs> and so John was out on a surf trip, kind of had pondered this and his idea. So he went to uh, Sumatra and he ended up bringing um, uh, just outside the city of Padang. And he That's brought- in Indonesia. Into Indonesia, yep. and he brought uh, 10 filters. And so his whole plan was, I'm going to surf for a little bit, then I'll go drop these filters off. Uh, and so they're out on the boat, long day surfing an offshore break, uh, and they decide, you know what, we're just going to sleep on the boat. We're not going to come in. And that night, a huge earthquake hits. Like they look on shore, wow. and like the city is, I mean, it's Padang's two, point, two plus million people. Uh, and like the hotel they were in has dropped and everything. And John, in a moment, is like, hey, take me ashore. I've got these filters. And so the captain's like, what are you doing, man? Like, what do you mean? I'm not going to take you ashore. Like, everything is burning. And he's like, no, take me ashore. So he gets ashore. He finds a guy with the moped. He's like, I've got these filters. And the guy with the, mo the moped is like, all right, hey, let's go. And so he took him to a casualty collection point. And so this is where all the doctors are working on every single major casualty from this huge disaster it brought in. And he basically goes, okay, cool. And he starts showing the doctors, hey, I can make clean water. And they're like, perfect. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, great. We're going to give water to the people that are injured. No, this went to cleaning all of the tools and all of their instruments and mm. preventing bacterial infection. Because in this moment, you think about it, you're working on hundreds and thousands of casualties, and there's nothing that can take care of your tools and maintain a clean environment, except now you have this pro surfer who brought in some water filters, like the old ceramic dome, like drip water filters, wow. where he could create clean water. So he went collection point to collection point to collection point, uh, saved I think it was over 50,000 lives in that afternoon. Wow. Uh, and then that was the beginning of it. And so he went back, kind of worked on it, and then ended up going after the Haiti earthquakes, going to Haiti yeah. for living there for two plus years, uh, connecting with some, some military foreign area officers that worked down there, and just really working out the methodology of train the trainer, small footprint, large impact filtration-based training that has been the genesis of Waves for Water ever since. Uh, and so that brought John all the way forward. Uh, and then I kind of, how I came into the picture yeah. was John went to Afghanistan with a good friend of mine from 25th ID in Hawaii. Okay. Uh, and so he actually was in Afghanistan as a company commander and was looking through Surfer Magazine and saw an article on John in Haiti and was like, hey, we have a water problem here in Afghanistan. This would be yeah. great. So, like, and I love the story from both their sides. Like you have Mike, my friend, calling him from Afghanistan, from Kunar. And then you have John on the other side driving down PCH. It's like, hey, this is Captain Mike Brabner, commander of, uh, you know, the Wolfhounds. 
And he's like, what? Like, who are you? He's like, I'm calling you from <laughs> Afghanistan. You got a minute? And so they, they end up going over to, to Afghanistan doing work. And then this was, I want to say 2011. And okay. so they're finished their, their trip. Mike finishes deployment. I'm getting ready to go to Afghanistan in 2012. Uh, and they give me a shout. Mike's like, look, if you're going to Afghanistan, you have to do this waves of water thing. Uh, he's like, it was a huge win. I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. So I jump on the phone. I talk to John a little bit. He sends me a few filters, but I'm fully vested in like the mission set, right? Like I'm going over with a small team, a few Navy SEALs, my team. Like it's like 20 people in the middle of the mountains. Like there's this, nothing else this around a, us. What was your mission? What was your specific mission set there? Yeah, so our, our mission was to basically degrade the networks mm-hmm. that the Taliban was using to basically run shadow governance and okay. also basically establish security, education, and infrastructure in all these small villages in the mountains of Afghanistan. Uh, and so I was in Zabul. Uh, the Argandab River Valley, and we went village to village, basically living in a small camp in the middle of the mountains, and then we would go village to village trying to get them to build up their own security element like a local police force, right. uh, try to start schools and work internally, be like, hey, you can stand on your own. Like, you don't have to rely on the national government, which we think we all know, even in 2012, we're like, well, we'll see how far the national Afghani government's going to go. Sure. Uh, but here, we're trying to create these own systems so that they can manage themselves and be less open to the influence uh, of the Taliban. Um, but being for a them, small... for them at that time, it was kind of the mm-hmm. choice between one or the other, right? You're 100%. either going to try to rely on this national government that's still trying to figure things out and a lot of yep. corruption, or you're going to have to rely on this shadow government that the Taliban right. uh, had in place. And it worked both ways. Like prior to, because what a lot of people don't understand, especially in the mountains, like seasons dictate a lot of fighting. Like there is a fighting. Mm-hmm. It's, this isn't Iraq where you could just, you know, it was warm pretty much all the time except for one month out of the year. Right. When the snow comes in and the pass is closed, like nobody's coming in to fight. And so right. you have this entire fighting season. So I got there in January of 2012. And basically all the way through spring, we made a lot of headway. We opened up a lot of white space. Because that was not fighting down. season. Because it was not fighting season, right? I mean, right. you could basically take a snowboard to climb up the mountain and, and ride yeah. down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and so we were able to build relationships and expand our influence. And then fighting season happens. You get this entire flow of fighters coming in from Pakistan. And you have this these, these people are stuck in between uh, two people just battling it out. And they, they have to play both sides, and they had to do their best. I remember having a conversation. We'd started four or five small schools, which, I mean, a school is a, a chalkboard by the river and a few people there. Like, very mm-hmm. little support from the, naf- the national government, just enough to get them, like, books. Uh, and then I remember having this conversation with who was kind of a local Taliban guy but was willing to just, he just wanted to do the best by his community. And then when the shadow government, he's like, hey, man, I have to stop. He's like, mm-hmm. I, I love that we did this, but we can't do it anymore. He's like, they're coming in. He's like, I have to choose between you two. I, you're 10 miles away from me. Uh, you come out every day, but you're 10 miles away from me. Like, this isn't going to work. And he's like, they're going to kill me and my family. So wow. we have to shift. And I was like, it was the most honest conversation I had yeah. in, in that, that 11 months I was there, 10 months I was there. Because he was just like, I would love to keep doing this, but I have to turn it off. I have yeah. to stop. And I, I understand it. And I saw the same thing in Iraq, and you see the same thing everywhere in the world where it's just trying to make a decision. I feel like I've gone completely off topic here. No, like you a, haven't. A you right. haven't. Um, you're, you're, you're painting the full picture of your trip to Afghanistan and how yeah. this new connection between you and, and yes. Waves for Water was coming into play. 
I appreciate bringing me back on. So uh, <laughs> Afghanistan, uh, just it ended up being too kinetic of an environment for me to bring. I mean, we had a small package of you know 20, 20 US. I, I couldn't bring in four or five guys and a videographer. It just it didn't fit. And, and yeah. in the mountains, water wasn't as big of an issue, so I just couldn't justify it. So sure. uh, finished the Afghanistan trip. John and I kind of came in touch, kept in touch, uh, and then we bumped to. Uh, it's kind of funny. It's actually similar to to your story and how you and I connected. Is that I moved to Bosnia and I'm working out of the embassy in Sarajevo, and I happened to be there during the hundred year floods in 2000, beginning 2014. Yeah. Uh, and so my team got trapped in the floodplain. We eventually coordinate a lot of international response. We get out of the floodplain up north, get back down to Sarajevo, and as we start kind of laying out the map, and I meet with the ministers of health, I was like, "Hey, where are the issues? There's about 15 communities that are completely cut off." And it's just their water, their, most of their water systems are open source. So think of like a small pond or lake outside just up, up the hillside from your village. So gravity fed down. Well, once all the rain hits, it washes a ton of contamination into that and just immediately contaminates it. And landslides cut it off so they couldn't get a resupply. So we're like, oh, this looks perfect for a filtration system. So kind of like you did, like, hey, where's that filter guy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I called back. I was like, what's his name? Uh, and so I called John. I was like, hey, I don't know if you remember me. We chatted a little bit in 2012. Do you want to come to Bosnia and work with me here? He's like, I'm in. And he got a duffel bag full of filters, flew over with a, with a cool videographer, and I borrowed stole, borrowed a, uh, a Bosnian helicopter and pilots. Uh, I mean, like, uh, Tulsa. Good, interesting choice of words. I thought you were going to say, like, you know, a motorcycle, a car to pick him up from the airport. <laughs> nope. It was, uh, so it was, a, it was borrowed, but it was, you know, you build relationships. And sure. you're like, hey, I need a helicopter. And, yep. you know, the commander there's like, oh, fine, take Take him. He'll be fine. It'll be great. Yeah. And so I showed up and this guy barely spoke English. At least at the time, I thought he barely spoke English. He was like 50 years old, standing outside a helicopter that's twice his age. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was a UH-1 Huey. The door was orange. Like there were post-it notes. The GPS on the inside of it was like an old TomTom -Tom aviation GPS. I can't make this up. <laughs> and there's a great video. You can see me talking to him. And I don't think you can see the fear on my face, but I'm talking to him. He's like, yes, I will fly you to here. And then we will fly it here. Good. Where is this video? Like, do we have the, do we have this video? It's. I, I think I forgot. I'll send it over to you. It's okay. on. Uh, it's on YouTube for okay. uh, just Waves for Water Bosnia. And so you can see he and I talking. He's like, "Yes, I will fly you here." And we get in, and he just kind of gives me a thumbs up, and then he just takes off. And we fly into the mountains, and the mountains of Bosnia are I crazy. Think, let's let's just stop for. I think we're going to yeah, play the video real quick. The death toll continues to rise from the fighting <laughs> in the Balkans. Large swathes of Serbia, Bosnia and Croatia have been ravaged. Amid the worst rainfall to hit the Balkans in living memory, the government in Bosnia has been comparing the destruction to that of the country's war wow. in the 1990s. Yeah, it was, it was a mess. Struggling to cope with the scale of the disaster, with more than a million homes cut off from clean water supplies. Water of Bosnia's four million people are without clean water. The spread of disease is the latest concern of the authorities. Is this next part your um, Waves for Water Saves video? Waves for Water was okay. ultimately yep. born out of disaster. It was so you get a little bit of the history here from John. <laughs> that struck the city of Padang in Sumatra. What we've realized is how tight-knit the surfing community is in a time of crisis. Since then, we've responded to nine more disasters, including Hurricane Sandy, a huge tsunami in Japan, and more recently, the catastrophic floods in Bosnia. 
I apologize for this up front. This was my first time on video, so it's terrible. Stop. The floods has been the worst they've seen in about 150 years. So you're gonna drop us off. And you're a civil affairs team leader at this time. The way that waves water works falls directly in line with what we do as a soft civil affairs. That helicopter is a beaut. We decided to work in both Orahovicha and Brodots. Those two small isolated communities were fairly self-sufficient, but lacked their own capacity to provide clean water for the people. Bet your heart was beating pretty fast at that point. Brodots was oh. right in the major floodplain. Uh, the wow. second place where we go to land, you'll see the LZ and you won't believe it. Which is clean water. You drink so I drink. <laughs> this place on the hillside, postage stamp. So you had a skillful pilot then. He was unreal. Like, look at it. Yeah. Look how close he is yeah, to that building. I know, that's really close. Fill it up and clean it. It's perfectly potable. I don't think the victims in Bosnia have any idea about surfing. But I can tell you, they're incredibly grateful. That's awesome. It was so rad. I, I cannot explain. Like that, oh, that. Give me goosebumps just watching that. It changed my life. It yeah. absolutely changed my life. And there's two reasons. One, that pilot cracked me up because he pretended not to speak English for almost an entire day. <laughs> okay. And so we're landing. And he wanted, to, he wanted to check you out first. <laughs> oh, he, 100%. He was just having fun. He's like, oh, you pulled me away from my family. Like, my boss is telling me I have to fly this random American and his water mm -hmm. guy around the country. Uh, and so we hopped in. He put us on a postage stamp. Like, I'm on comms, I'm looking out, and I'm watching us, and I've landed in a lot of crazy places on a helicopter. That Huey barely fit, and it's a school on one side and power lines on the Oof. other three sides. Oh, my god. And gosh. the side of a mountain, and he dropped it right in the center of it. And John is like, this is amazing. And I'm like, we're going to die. <laughs> like, we're going to die right now. Like, this is it. Uh, and we land, and the, the pilot, right after that, turns and looks at me and goes, how'd you like my landing? <laughs> oh I was my like, gosh. you've got to be messing with me. He had something like 3,000 hours in the Bosnian, like the oh, Bosnian wow. war, like it was nuts. Uh, but that experience, what I really loved about that is I went back to the country team meeting after doing like four of these different missions and spoke to the, at the, the charge day affair, the ambassador, the whole crew and was like, Hey, we were able to provide access to clean water to 25,000 people in four days. It was the most tangible impact I had in my military career because I've done, I don't know how many raids in, in Iraq. I don't know how many, you know, 600 you were plus an combat missions. You were an infantryman before you became a civil affairs yes. officer. Yeah. yeah. So I was an infantryman in Iraq um, for 15 months uh, in 07, 08. And so I don't know how many recon missions. I don't know how many raids. I don't know how many combat missions I've, sure. I've led or been on. It's, it's six, 700 uh, in my career. But the most tangible impact where it's like, hey, I did something. I've removed people from the battlefield. I've adjusted the space, but you don't feel that. Like you're like, okay, this is great. And the next day starts the same. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? 
What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. After four days of doing this with Waves for Water, we'd physically changed the landscape of our influence in the space and we had provided life-saving aid to 25,000 people in four days. I, it was it changed and I remember being able to brief that and it was the first time in every briefing I'd ever done where I was like look at this is what my team did and it was it, it, it changed my life and it was such a positive impact I've taken that with me since then uh, and that was how John and I met and we became friends uh, and thankfully he reached out to me in 2015 uh, with the idea of starting the Clean Water Corps, and it's just been a, ru- a sprint ever since. It's been amazing. One of the things that I really love about um, your sharing that story and your experience is um, it, it's kind of sh- it, it exemplifies what is the best of the the special operations ability to go and deploy small teams to solve very real problems and help people to build those it's relationships the- to to um, identify a problem that can provide a lasting solution um, and empower people where they are towards working those, you know, the the short-term filter solution, but working that towards a long-term sustainable solution that empowers them. It's not somebody else coming in and saying, okay, well, you just step step aside and we're going to do this for you. Uh, and, And having the flexibility to be able to do exactly what you did, to go and grab like, okay, who do I need? What do I need? Find yeah. me a way to get there and just go and actually do it and and not getting stuck in all the freaking red tape bureaucracy of this or that that or whatever and, and people being served uh, and helped in the process. And those people who've been helped, that memory of what you were able to do is a reflection of how they view um, what we stand for as a country. Yeah, that you you well, would be able to go do that. Absolutely, and what what I love about you know being a soft team leader is you get four guys and for a CA a soft CA team is four people, right? Yeah. So I have four people, uh, limited resources, and a giant problem set, and it's just like go forth and do great things, yes. like figure it out, figure it out, uh, exactly. And the best part about this, and, and and I liked what you said, and and from the soft community, like the key phrase that that sticks heavily with what we do at Waves for Water too is by with and through. Mm-hmm. Like I can't do it by myself. I'm not. I'm not 150 people. I'm not a battalion of you know 1,800 people. I'm not all these resources. I'm four people that can make some phone calls and you know be creative. Mm-hmm. And so that means is you find local partners, you train them, you work by them, the it, it you work with them, you bring resources to them, and then the impact is done through them. Mm-hmm. And that is what we do. Like we train the trainer at Waves for Water. Like I love it. I've gone to countries four or five times, and then I don't have to go back. Because the program itself is running. The people on the ground have it. They own it. Right. They are providing clean water to their own communities, not some random you know, white guy from Idaho that's exactly. flying in on a plane for two weeks. And that's, that, I love that more than anything. And it just allows us also to 
not get bogged down in, in large infrastructure. It allows us to stay light and it allows us to have such a clarity of mission and purpose yeah. that it's just, it's incredibly important. And you've enlisted a lot of, we'll get into the surfing aspect in a little bit, but uh, <laughs> you, you've brought on um, and actually created a program mm -hmm. under the Waves for Water umbrella that you talk about purpose and our brothers and sisters in uniform you know, once they step away from that life, uh, are often caught in a position of feeling purposeless. Like, okay, yep. like I've just literally dedicated my life towards serving this greater good, towards serving the country and fulfilling this bigger mission. Now what? <laughs> That's the question, right? Now yeah. what? Like, what, what does this look like? Because yeah. it's not like there's this entire runway of like, hey, let's, you know, let's work you out of this. Let's do a few small things to, to wean you off of the last 10 years of your life of, of doing nothing but a mission focus with a team. Yeah. Uh, doesn't, doesn't happen. Uh, so how, how have you been able to help help answer that question for people? Yes. So that's the clean water core. And that's the that's why John brought me into Waves for Water. And I'll never forget the phone call. He's like, hey, I want to build a veteran division inside of Waves for Water, and I want you to help. I was like, I'm in, sold. Mm -hmm. I don't care what it takes, I'm in. Like I'm, I'm done with active duty. This this is my this is a you don't get a call like that every now mm -hmm. and then. Uh, and so when it popped up, I was like, I looked at my wife, I was like, it's time. This is what we're gonna do. We're leaving active duty, it's time to go do this. And it the Clean Water Corps has turned into, uh, and there's a lot of stories to go into it, and I'll, I'll hit a few, but the, the baseline of the Clean Water Corps is to bring in the skill sets of veterans to enable Waves for Water's mission to be even more aggressive, right? Go to the more dangerous areas, go to the more rough areas, take the skills that we have and apply that to the global water crisis, right? That's one. And then two, which is kind of an initiative into itself, is provide purpose, a clear mission and a team and support structure for veterans uh, after leaving active duty and military service because that is so critical. Uh, the loss of identity when you take away a person's team, mission, and purpose is catastrophic. Um, I, you can't count the number of people that I've watched go down the bottle or yeah. just depression and everything that happens post and uh, worse military yet, service. And our friends who take their own lives because they feel like they have no purpose, no exactly. reason to live anymore. Exactly. Far too familiar with that piece. I yeah. think that becomes a, that's about a, a, it's gone down to about, you know, every, every other quarter nowadays. But at one point it was like every other month, here's a phone yeah. call. Another one didn't make it. Yeah. Um, and it's, so being able to build that structure and that system, and right now we have 40 veterans as members of Clean Water Corps. We've been doing it for five years Amazing. now. Oh God, no, let me do the math. We're, I still can't believe it's 2023. I know. <laughs> so uh, we founded in 2016, the end of 2016, our first wow. mission was 2017. Okay. Uh, so we're at say, almost six years, uh, six years now uh, of, of Clean Water Corps missions. Uh, we've done 26 countries, 50 plus missions, 40 plus veterans. Uh, and really we've, we built a small family and community that allows us to lean on each other. And uh, a big a big moment for me, and I think this describes the Clean Water Corps as best as I can, is so during the uh, hurricanes in Puerto Rico. Uh, so we went down after hurricanes, Hurricane Irma. They've had so many. Yeah, right. Let's we'll, we'll go back to 2017 because yeah. this is really where it clicked for me. Uh, so we went down there following Hurricane Irma uh, and went to the U.S. Virgin Islands, the British Virgin Islands. Did some work there. Amazing time. Great, great, great work. And while we're down there, Hurricane Maria popped up in the Atlantic. And this is where I gained a lot of uh, 
a lot of respect for surf and the uh, the craft of reading uh, storms. I didn't right. even understand that because I was down there with two great surfers, Dylan Graves and Ben Bourgeois, and they're before we even got off the plane in the Virgin Islands. They're like, "Do you see this popping up?" And I'm looking at. I have no idea what they're looking at. And they're right. like, "Oh, this is going to be a big one." I'm like, "How do you even know this?" Right. <laughs> uh, but so while we're down there, we work for about three or four days, and then Hurricane Maria pops up, and we know it's going to hit uh, Saint Croix. We know it's going to go into Puerto Rico. Part of the team with me was Puerto Rican surfers. Uh, and so John and I got together. We're like, hey, let's split. So John stayed with the team on St. Croix. Uh, I went with Otto Flores and the other Puerto Rican contingent up to Puerto Rico. Uh, and then we rode out Hurricane Maria. So my 36th birthday was riding out, I think at that point, when it hit San Juan, it was a Cat 4 a storm. Wow. Uh, which, a guy from the mountains, that was uh, an experience, to say the least. I'm um, sure. We sat there, I watched water start coming through the walls, and I'm just talking to Otto, like, hey man, like, is this what's supposed to happen? He goes, right. oh yeah, this is fine, don't worry about it. Like, the walls bleed like that when it, during a hurricane. I'm just watching cars roll down the street, I'm like, this is mind-blowing to me. Um, and really, the next day is where it started, right? Like, the, the novelty, it's the same thing with combat, right? Like, a gunfight's great. But then the next day, you're like, oh, the adrenaline's gone. Now I'm dealing with, like, what, what happened? Where are we at? Right. And so it was the same thing. I, I remember walking out of the hotel we stayed in uh, to kind of get to a little better shelter and walking out to just absolute destruction. Going and getting Otto's car, getting his family, his kids, finding a place to stay, like, calling people from Airbnb and, like, hey, yeah, they're like, yeah, you can go in, but, like, you can't get in there. It's like, oh, I'm going to lean back and break into an apartment building now. Like, oh, mm-hmm. let me lean back on the skills I, I gained at Sears School and let's figure this out. Uh, and, and going through that process, um, and really it was, it was amazing for me. I remember after doing this, like, getting settled, working incredibly hard for, like, six or seven months uh, finding kind of a light at the end of the tunnel, right? Like we've made progress. We've helped at this point. I think we'd help maybe 50 or 60,000 people. Uh, and we were really, really moving. It was just an, a beautiful thing to be a part of. And I remember sitting on Wilderness, uh, a few of my team members out there, out there, Jorge and Jose surfing. And I remember sitting there and realizing that... Is Wilderness a surf spot? It is. Oh, it's beautiful. Okay. You got to go do it. Yeah, Wilderness is on the northwest coast of uh, Puerto Rico. Absolutely okay. beautiful. Great break. Rinc- Rincon is is the famous one. I, I, I'm Rincon not is the famous with, one. Like with, uh, it's if probably you get a the crowded to go, one too. <laughs> yeah, uh, Hobos is one of my favorite because I'm a terrible surfer, okay. uh, and, and it's almost like a, like the current basically just kicks you out right behind the break. So it's as close to a chairlift as you're going to get in surfing. Got it. Right. You take the break in and you just stay on your board, and the current will pop you right back out behind the break. It's the lazy gringo surf spot. It's great, That's not uh, a bad but it's super thing. fun. And then Wilderness is another one just up the coast from it, and it's beautiful. Awesome. Um, but I remember sitting on the back of Jorge's truck and realizing that the experience of of going through that disaster. And not just doing it and the same thing in the military where, you know, you go hit a village and then you leave or you go talk to somebody or, you know, you fly into a village in Bosnia and you provide help and then you leave and you don't go back. Right. Like you get to put a bandaid on it or you get to cause the cause the issue and the trauma uh, and then you walk away and you do your best. And then six months later, you rotate out and somebody else comes in. Right. Being able to be a part of that recovery was unbelievable for me. It, it it showed me how much I had lost in the way of compassion, empathy, what a cynic in the world I'd come with just from what I'd been exposed to uh, in war and in disaster. And I think probably for the first time in a long time, I kind of just sat there and cried. And then I wrote and I realized that not just for me, but the impact on my family, because I had gone from one mission to another. I'd gone from Iraq to Afghanistan to Europe 
to a training post and then out and now went right into building the clean water core and travel after travel after travel. And I didn't realize that I never took two seconds to realize that like I was as broken as anybody else. Mm. So when I thought I was building the clean water core for the other veterans, cause I was fine. Like I was great. I was moving a hundred miles an hour. I was successful. It was great. I didn't realize that I built it for myself. Mm. And in that moment, I was like, this didn't, this may have helped other people, but in the end it saved me. And that, that to me was the most eye-opening thing it could be and, and really pushed me like, hey, this needs to go forward because if I built it thinking I was helping everybody else and it showed me where I was at and it helped my family and my relationship with my kids and my wife, what can it do for other people? And that's really where we just kind of took off. And I've been so lucky to have some of the most talented people on the planet jump on the Clean Water Core piece with me and really make it what it is today and, and where we're going to go next. That's... Um that's such a beautiful and powerful realization um, because it speaks to, it speaks to, I mean, you, you know, you're talking about the experience of, of service members and veterans mm -hmm. very specifically um, and how, what you realized about yourself, but also about what could actually help others. But for those who are, are listening or watching who don't have a military background, I mean, the underlying problem is one that, you know, we all feel at different times in our mm -hmm. lives where, you know, we've, you, know you, you can go 100 miles an hour every day. You can chase this goal or that objective or that title or that degree or that, you know, yep. bonus at your job or whatever it is. But ultimately, when you really just stop for a moment, often um, unless, unless, you know, you're spending that time doing something that is truly fulfilling, helping others, yep. serving others, serving that, that, that higher purpose, that, that bigger mission, you end up just, just empty. You end you, up feeling empty. Yeah, chasing money is not a purpose. Exactly. And, and I've realized that a and lot. Like, it doesn't make you happy. No, not at all. Um, it's the, the importance of one's, and I, for lack of, for the one person of, of having an identity and a purpose is, so critical to who you are. And I think that has to be nested in more than your job, more than, you know, the things that we can't control, right? It has yeah. to be nested in, in what do you want to accomplish and what do you want to do? And it's, it's interesting because what I learned a ton from in this was how much me leaving the military actually affected my, my wife, mm -hmm. Tiffany, my spouse, because when I left, I went right into working for Waves. And she did what she's done, which is she's always, I mean, she's held down the, oh my God, I cannot even. The, if you've never lived in, if you've never been a part of the military, you don't understand the weight yeah. that a military spouse carries. You can't. Yeah. Like when I went to Iraq, I left and she was four months pregnant. Like I got an email that I was a dad. You know, I went to Afghanistan and, you know, she deals with kids, sickness, crisis, death, catastrophe on like multiple levels. And all I have to do is, you know, execute the mission I've got to do today, yeah. hit the gym, get a little bit of food and get ready to do it again the next day. Right. Like it's, it's so much more complicated. And so what I look back on and I, I kick myself that I didn't understand this is when I left active duty, I lost my identity, but I jumped right into a new one. Mm. She lost that military spouse identity. So all of a sudden I'm traveling the world doing waves for water and there's no one there to support her. There's no structure. There's no, no one else to commiserate because there's always an, a group of military spouses that can rely on each other. Right. And so she lost her identity overnight. And I didn't even notice. Mm. Uh, it took two years for me to look back and be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What is this? 
Yeah. Like, how did I miss this? Like, how did you, like, she just literally, for lack of a better term, suffered in silence and just tried to figure it out as she was holding down the, holding down the house. And so that led to really figuring out that like, hey, this is so much more important because I can look at it from, you know, we can have the discussion from a veteran's perspective, PTSD yeah. experiences. She didn't experience all those things, but she carried such a level of stress and support and, and continuous, like, I mean, rely on her for everything, mm-hmm. right? And it's that that created an identity and a purpose in her that was also gone the second that I left the military. And that's mm. so often overlooked. So yeah. we've tried to try to fi- we've tried to find ways to to also integrate the military spouse piece into it. We have a program that we've been trying to fundraise for in Nepal, uh, which is geared towards some more female veterans and military spouses to get them out the door to do get the experiences in the team that we get uh, and bring them into a tighter fold to try to create that community because it's just so important. And it's yeah. again, I kick myself for not even having noticed. Uh, you know, just the way it yeah. goes sometimes. But but you did, and and you know, w- when you when you had this realization, I think that's what I appreciate about you, Rob, is that you didn't just like, oh gosh, well now I get it. Okay, what? Let's move on. Like you you you've actually taken action um, to do what you have done throughout. You know, your your professional life certainly is just like, okay, how do we actually start to solve this, uh, yep. and and pay that forward to help other people. Uh, to be able to do the same. And I think that's what's so amazing uh, about the Clean Water Corps is that you're providing that sense of purpose uh, and and providing that open door to other service members and spouses to feel that sense of happiness and fulfillment that really truly only comes from when you're dedicating yourself to to serving uh, and helping others. And yeah. I know throughout throughout the time we've known each other, whenever I've called you and asked you like, oh, how's it going, what you're up to? like. Waves for water, you're not making a lot of money from Waves for Water, if any. Again, <laughs> um, always whenever it's like, oh, what are you up to? Like you, you like bumble through and mention these other things that you're doing to, to pay the bills. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but really like your, your passion uh, is, is to serve. And yep. what I appreciate about Waves for Water is that um, there are so many different outlets for people to be a part of this, even if they can't go and deploy to another country themselves. Uh, and to help help uh, execute that mission, uh, you've got pro surfers who are support. I don't know, talk talk a little bit about the support network around you because I found out we have a lot of mutual friends in the surfing community. And um, <laughs> who who are the hands that are helping to to support and move this mission forward? Who may not physically be those boots on the ground? You know, it's I the surf community has absolutely blown me away. All right, and and my experience with surf prior to Waves for Water and John Rose has been, you know, I, I lived a couple months on Ponto and San Diego, and like would basically just get rolled over every time I could chance, because or every time I could, because I just tried to teach myself to surf. Terrible, um, but getting to know the surf community and and John and I talk about this all the time is there is a lot of similarities between a special operator and a, and a surfer. Like the ability to go to a small community and get to know them, the ability to build a network and give back and and just find a problem and solve it on their own because the best surf breaks in the world aren't on a beach where you take a train to get there, right? Like they are, they're buried and you have to work to get to it and you have to have a network and a support structure. So it's been amazing. And like the the people that have supported this John's crew and his network is phenomenal. They are always there to to support us and he's done a great job of building bringing in amazing 
uh, commercial partners that, that have worked with us. Like we are, we're a very different organization, right? Like we, we have never been able to, and, uh, and John and I love this, like we've never been the organization that's going to go out and just ask for money. Mm-hmm. We've never been able to do that. Like it's so hard to go out and just be like, hey, we do good things, please give us money. Right? So we've always tried to create programs and ways to involve people in the mission because I would rather have somebody that believes in what we do can support us on the backside and you know provide a little bit of financial support to make it happen than somebody that's sitting a thousand miles away writing us a big check and just like pretending like yeah that's great and then you know posting mm-hmm. it on their own piece. So it's become a network of incredibly supportive individuals. Um, John's crew, I mean. I, I have to like specifically to names Otto Flores, Dylan Graves, Ben Bourgeois. Like those guys have been everywhere, and, and they're amazing. I've been lucky enough to have them try to push me into waves multiple nice. times. Um, <laughs> John, John, and his crew, and just it's been amazing to be exposed to that. And then uh, one of my favorites is uh, Gabriel Villaran. Uh, he's a big wave surfer from Peru, become a good friend of mine. Uh, and just every time I pick up the phone and make a phone call, I mean, he's a he's a big time surfer, like a Red Bull athlete, incredible yeah. dude. And I can pick up a phone call and whatever he's doing, he answers like, what do you need, man? We're there. It is just awesome. incredible to have the support of, of the surf community tied into it. It's, it's amazing. What does it look like then when, so, so one of the things that, that I wasn't surprised by, but that I was impressed by was that when we got on the phone uh, while I was deployed and I mm-hmm. outlined the problem set to you, um, there was no hesitation. You're like, mm-hmm. yeah, of course we can help. Which was, I've worked with a lot of nonprofits, small and large. (laughs) Um, It's hard to imagine most of those, I actually can't think of any, uh, uh, you know, off the the tip of my tongue, who would not hesitate and would state with confidence, yes, we Mm -hmm. can do this mission in a battle, in an active battle space uh, in a country like Somalia. So, um, first of all, awesome, and thank you. (laughs) And second of all, um, walk me through what what is this? What does it look like for you? So, so Somalia is one example, but you you've gone and done others in other places. What is the process? What do you do from yeah. that point where you get the call saying, "Hey, we need your help. Here's the situation, the people, the place, yeah. the risk involved. What happens next?" Yeah, so it's it, it's it's such a smooth process. I it, it's I love it. Um, so once we get that call, right? Either I get the call for a mission, or John does. Like we get a quick phone call, like, "Hey, we're going to do this. Cool. What do we need? Perfect." So we initially we find our local team, whoever that's going to be. We make a few phone calls. It usually takes two phone calls. Like the depth of the network is amazing. So two phone calls. We have a local team member that can start to assess things on the ground, and then we make sure. And this is the biggest one, right? And and this is where I lose a lot of. This is what I really like where we fit in the community. If our system and our solution is not a good fit, we say no. It's that simple. I don't need to push a mission to get content. I don't want to push a mission to do content. I don't ever want to do a project just to do a project. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. Like, Is this a viable solution? Are we the right answer or should we put them in touch with somebody else? That's one. Uh, Two, can we do it? I mean, that's that's a yes. I, with the group of people we have, like you're not, there is not one person in the crew where I was like, hey, can we do this deep and small? Yes. There's not even a hesitation. Mm-hmm. Like everyone is like, where are we going? Antarctica? Done. Yeah. I don't think they have an issue with water, but we can yeah. make it happen. <laughs> right? Like there's just not one person who's going to say no. And we're all like, cool, what's the challenge? Because that's what we want. Yeah. How do we get there? Let's make it happen. So that process happens. And then we look at funding, right? And we're like, okay, so now we know what we take, how much is going to cost. We're light. We're, we, don't, we don't need to stay in a fancy hotel. Like you don't have to take care of us. Like put us, in, put us on the ground into the dirt. 
we'll do it. Uh, and so we then look back and John has some great people that support us at small projects where it's like, hey, this is important. We can make a phone call and they'll take care of it. And that's what we did with Somalia. It's like, hey, this is something we really want to do. I think it's a great fit for the core. I think it's a good project. Uh, we reach back in and make a phone call. And he's like, yep, done. You can, can do I, it. Can I just add, insert really quickly there? You talk yeah. about how you guys, you know, you don't need to stay in fancy hotels. You're happy to sleep in the dirt <laughs> or, you yeah. know, where, wherever necessary. Um, there's a few places that I've been. I know Syria is one. Mm -hmm. Somalia is another. Um, actually, actually, specifically uh, in Syria, I remember when I was there in uh, early 2017 driving by a fancy Four Seasons type hotel oh, yeah. and learning very quickly that that is essentially where all of like the big NGO, the oh, yeah. non-governmental organization people like the UN types and others, that's where they live. That's where yep. they live. Oh, yeah. you know, it's not like, oh, okay, we'll go stay there for a week. And so when no. you look at the amount of overhead uh, that so many of these organizations have, whether they be the, the NGO UN types or if they are some of the very big nonprofits, that, that's the thing when I'm looking at, okay, well, who, who do I want to support and contribute to? Immediately I go there to like, okay, how much are you spending on overhead? Because I've been to a lot of these places and I met with a lot of these people <laughs> who have no problem, them just themselves, like forget the organizational structure, but just yep. as an individual that you're okay with going and spending thousands of dollars a night, perhaps, yep. certainly a week, what to speak of month by month, to go and stay at this place when you're surrounded with the people you're supposed to be there to help yep. and serve in squalor without clean water, without food, and so on. It, it's just, it's such a stark, um, gosh, I don't know if dichotomy is the right word, but hypocrisy yeah. perhaps is the better <laughs> yeah. word. <laughs> I, I remember, so after Hurricane Maria, my first like real exposure, I mean, I saw it with the UN working with them in, in Bosnia and, and other places, but the Sheridan, and this blew my mind. So Maria hits and we're on the West Coast. Like we mm -hmm. were the first one on the West Coast. Like we were providing filters to National Guard members who were living at the base because their command had left to go get support and hadn't gotten it, so they hadn't come back. So I'm like providing water filters to soldiers who don't have clean water. I'm like, this is driving me insane. Yeah. Uh, and so when we get back to San Juan and we're kind of resetting and we're in like Airbnbs we've broken into that don't have power and like we're making everything work. And then sitting in the Sheridan Convention Center is every nonprofit, mm -hmm. all the government, and they, they're the only ones with power, the only ones with the internet. They've got a great sushi restaurant, a great mm -hmm. bar, and it's just basically a party. And they're doing all these coordination meetings. I went to one, and they're like, well, we're out here. I was like, they're like, well, we can't get here. I was like, I was there today. Yeah. They're like, oh, well, we'll see if we can make it. And I'm like, I'm done. Yeah. I, I remember sitting in, and this, this really wrote the piece, uh, when I first got back down to Sarajevo, I, put, I went from dirty and, and a messy, I put a suit on, I went over to a meeting with the WASH cluster at the UN, and I sat down, there's probably What's the a hundred... the WASH cluster? Uh, so WASH is water, sanitation, and hygiene. Okay. And so this is the cluster system in large disasters, is each cluster manages safe spaces, okay. infrastructure, water, sanitation, and hygiene is where, where we fit in with the water project. And so I went and sat in a room with a hundred other NGOs, um, you have the head of the WHO in the country that's like on an elevated platform running the meeting. Uh, walking in, and I will never forget this, is this guy in uh, a Bosnian guy, white t-shirt, sweated through with like holding maps, like rolled up maps, like walking in. <sighs> like you can tell he hasn't slept in days and he sits down, he's holding the maps. 
And the WHO rep goes, hey, thank you very much for the Minister of Health from the uh, Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina for coming in. We're going to start this cluster and go through. Let's start on the left. And I figured he would give us a sit temp and he would say, this is what I need. And all the NGOs would be like, hey, I can do that. I can do that. Like, delineate it out. Right. Uh, no. Like, we started on the back corner, and they were like, today I went here and I de- delivered backpacks. Because, like, each organization did its own thing. And they basically you could have drawn a circle around Sarajevo that was an hour. And they just had started doing their own project where they could get to, where they could do it. And it went on for about 30 minutes of just people being like, this is what I've done. And I could see the guy up front who'd come in hopeful, holding all his maps, and just get sad. And I was finally like, I'm done. I've been up in this. I'm over I stood up. I was like, hey, I'm sorry. Are we going to actually get to like the meat and potatoes of this, or what are you? He's like, yeah, we're going to get through everybody. I was like, I don't have time for that. Yeah, I, Ron McQueen, U.S. Embassy. This is not how I'm going to do this. If you need me, I'm going to go. I handed my card to the minister, and I was like, if you want anything from the U.S., call me, and we'll work together. I was just up there, and I walked out of the room. The guy came out. The WHO guy chased me out. He's like, no, no, this is. How. I was like, stop. Like this yeah. is unreal to me that we are wasting this guy's time in his country, patting ourselves on the back. Exactly. Like I cannot be a part of this. Exactly. Uh, and so, and and all he wanted. All he wanted was, and this, this has been a frustration of mine forever, all he wanted was a website that people could call into and say they lost their home, they lost somebody, they need water, they need power. He just wanted somebody because those maps were red dots that phone calls he'd been taking and his team had been taking in his little office for days. And then I go into the WHO the next day. He called me. He's like, hey, come in for a meeting. I'll show you what we have. And he had this big, beautiful Palantir-level heat map of aid and everything. I was like, cool. Can, can, they, can they access that? And he goes, well, they don't have a license. I was like, great. So this is nothing. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the host nation country can't even read this beautiful multi-million dollar license system you have. It's worthless. And he right. goes, oh. I was like, maybe just can you build him a website? And he goes, I don't have the funding for that. I was like, yeah. and I'm done. I'm done. I'm not coming back over here again. Yeah. Right? It's and in and order it, for in order for everywhere. you talk about a license. In order for yeah. them to get access to it, to purchase the license. Yep. Not even an option. Not no, even not an even option. Close. It's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. And God, that but that's again, so that's angry. why I love this job. Is because yeah. I don't have to do that. I don't have to deal with that. I get to yeah. find the people that have a need. And I get to take my fellow veterans that want nothing more than to find a purpose and, and, and a mission, and we get to go do it. And it's amazing. So when you called for Somalia, it was like, oh, done. <laughs> Absolutely done. Plus, I had a few friends that were already working over there. So it was yeah. going to be a twofer. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> I think at different times I've told you, sign me up. Tell yeah, me where oh, we're yeah, going. Absolutely. Tell me where we're going. Done. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is such... Um, such an incredible thing. I think I think the thing that I want to close on because you said you mm-hmm. guys don't ask people for money. Yeah. Um, I would like to ask people if you <laughs> appreciate the importance of clean water and if you appreciate uh, this incredible service that's being performed by uh, these guerrilla humanitarians, which I, I love that. Such um, a good term. Tell, tell us where they can go and then just talk a little bit about how, how they can donate, how they can contribute yep. and support. Uh, and then also just to, if you could talk about what their, uh, what, how, what their support would be going toward. Yeah. So go to Waves for Water. That's F-O-R, wavesforwater.org. 
uh, and look and hit donate. So the way that we like to do this and what I, what I love is we create programs and projects that we believe are great causes. And then you can, t- you can then support those specific projects. So it's not donating to a general piece. It's not donating to the whole organization. You are donating to a project and an impact that we are going to have. So there's a few beautiful ones up there that I love. One that's very close to my heart is a, a, a military spouse project. So we have a network in Nepal of uh, probably one of the most amazing women I've met who stood up an entire midwife network. I think at this point, the only midwife network uh, heading from Kathmandu up into the uh, the Himalayas. Wow. And so we've set up a project with military spouses, uh, my wife being one of them, helping design the project. Uh, and then also some of our female Clean Water Corps veterans uh, to go support those midwife centers with clean water filtration systems. And I think that's just an amazing project. Um, that's a huge one. Also, we're trying to do uh, just trying to like show you what we who we are and what we do. And so, in an effort to kind of keep with that kind of value proposition piece, we're going to do a fundraiser uh, that is actually an opportunity. If you donate to the fundraiser, you get an opportunity to come on a Clean Water Corps trip with me and one other uh, Clean Water Corps veteran to Thailand. And we're going to mm, do a project awesome. on the Myanmar border, uh, which I've done work before. We get to go back to a village, see the impact, and also do more. Uh, and that's an amazing piece that will happen later this year. And so if you have a chance, donate to that fundraiser. Uh, and you have a chance to come and see what we do firsthand uh, and, and do it with us. So, but yeah, that's Amazing. it. That's us. Amazing. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for your service to our country. Thank you for your continuing to do all that you can to help and serve others. And uh, as I said, when we opened this conversation, the, the mission of clean water is, is uh, a personal one for me. And and uh, I just appreciate uh, you and John, the organization, all the volunteers and, and those who are supporting, uh, helping bring life to people through clean water. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Tulsi. Thank you so much for having me on and giving me the opportunity to share what we do uh, at Waves for Water and the Clean Water Corps. My pleasure. Anytime. This is Tulsi here. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me here on the show. If you would like to support this show and the content that we're creating as we take a stand for freedom and speak truth and speak with some common sense during these insane times, please visit TulsiGabbard.com and click on the support button. Uh, The only way that we're able to produce this show is through support from listeners and viewers just like you. Again, visit TulsiGabbard.com and click support. Aloha. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.